Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek. We always appreciate you letting us be part of your day. We hope you're having a good day. Lots to talk about as we'll talk with Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board, his reaction to the biofuels news this week. Uh, Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of Soy Transportation Coalition, joins us. We'll talk about the impact of uh, Hurricane Sally on uh, our river traffic and that Gulf area. And we'll get into high oleic soybeans, something you might want to consider planting next year if you aren't already planting them. We'll talk with a member of the United Soybean Board, a soybean grower from Maryland, about those opportunities. That's all coming up on today's program. But we're going to start it off today with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd is a Nebraska football fan. I'm an Ohio State football fan. We are happy Big Ten fans today, right? It looks like we're going to have a football season. Yeah, it's been a nutty time, hasn't it, Mike? I mean, we, you know, we've been waiting for so long. You know, we've had so much going on here in, in Nebraska, people pushing for this. And it's, yeah, you know, it's not agriculture related, but it's certainly a big day if you're a, if you're a Big Ten fan, no doubt about it. Yeah, now I'm just hoping some of the uh, players that opted out may want to see if they can opt back <laughs> in. We'll see. We'll see how that plays out. But uh, yeah, just yeah. good news there. But it's been a good news for the bio, a good news week for the biofuels industry in a year that's had a lot of bad news. Finally, some good news this week. Yeah, it's been huge, Mike. Uh, you know, you, you can't overstate the importance of EPA rejecting the 54 waivers that are uh, that they had before them. They have another 14 coming from the DOE yet, but. Uh, all indications are we've been told that those also will be rejected. Um, you know, I think uh, going down the road here, we're, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with uh, the, the current waivers. You know, we've got, mm-hmm. I think, 30 or 31 that are still pending. Um, and there's some suggestion that perhaps EPA is going to go the direction of applying this uh, this situation nationally as, as the biofuels industry has hoped for from the beginning. And I think uh, we should find out rather short order what the EPA is going to do with those. That would be good news getting even better if the, if that is the case. Then you add to it the yeah. potential, and I say potential because there are still a lot of hurdles to overcome, but the potential of being able to get E15 through the E10 pumps, that could really be big as well. Absolutely, Mike, and uh, not really clear at this point what the EPA side of this is, although obviously EPA is involved in these issues, but Uh, It appears that it's going to be kind of a state-by-state thing, you know, whether state regulators will allow it and and that sort of thing. We've seen a lot of states already move in this direction, and I think, uh, you know, it certainly is going to open up the E15 market. There's no doubt. I mean, there's been a lot of infrastructure questions about uh, how E15 can be pumped and and how fast we can get that market to expand, but this certainly is a a very big – a very big deal and we'll see uh we'll see what epa does i suspect there's going to be a rule or there's going to be something coming out now we're also waiting for those rvo levels for next year yeah you know uh we have the june deadline come and go uh for epa to release the proposal um it's quite interesting you know through all of this and, and the waivers and everything we've been seeing in the news lately 
uh, that side of it's kind of been lost in the equation. You know, they got to have those RFS volumes, and when they don't come out on time, it's another point of uncertainty for the industry. But uh, I would say at this point, that's a fairly minor issue compared to what we've seen already take place this week. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, now look at some other issues, such as CFAP 2.0. We thought we were going to get the announcement, the details last week, but we're here we are middle of this week and still waiting. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, we heard from the Ag Secretary last week that uh, it is coming. Um, you know, we saw the announcement this week on the Brazilian ethanol tariff situation, uh, something else that, uh, that Secretary Perdue had mentioned. Uh, I suspect that they're still working out the final details on this, but we're looking at uh, quite a bit of funding that's still sitting there through the CARES Act, um, you know, and other things. And so I think, uh, I think that's probably something we're going to see yet this week, if not the first of next. Uh, you know, we've seen so many things happening in the news here lately. It's kind of like uh, Trump administration is trying to clear the deck on all these things. So I, I suspect that's going to come rather soon. And we wait to see if Congress can pass another COVID aid package. And if it does, what's in it for agriculture? Yeah, that's just it. You know, it's, uh, it sounds pretty consistent, but there's $20 billion that will be there for ag if that happens. But, uh, you know, you look at the way things are going. I know the Democrats in the House are facing a lot of heat right now to try to get something something going and trying to get both sides together. Uh, but they, they remain worlds apart on this. And so I suspect this is one of those uh, election year issues that's probably not going to be resolved before the election. And if it's $20 billion or whatever the amount is, it'll yeah. be interesting to see how it's handled. Is If it's left up to USDA discretion, how they use right. that money... And, you know, Secretary Purdue has already said for CFAP, we, you know, it can't go to the ethanol producers. He has to have specific direction from Congress. Well, they may not give specific direction. They may just uh, turn it over to him and and give him the oversight on how to use it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, Without a bill and without specific language, I think that puts the secretary in kind of a kind of a tight spot as to what he can do. Although you saw with the last round of funding, a number of ag uh, sectors received received funds, and so um, I'm not sure why ethanol is any different. But I, I think uh, you know if, if ethanol can get that can get something in a bill or something somewhere, uh, whether it be through Secretary Purdue that there's some you know executive action you can take. I don't know what the case may be, but uh, certainly ethanol has got to be included in there somewhere. It will put uh, Secretary Purdue in an interesting and a tough spot, quite frankly, yeah. we'll, and we'll see how he handles it. The other big story that isn't getting a whole lot of attention, but one to watch, the WTO ruling against the U.S. on uh, tariffs on China. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, you know, and uh, we're talking about $234 billion uh, of Chinese goods that were uh, that were slapped with tariffs, you know, as part of this whole trade war. Um so far, I, I think the administration's pretty pretty tight in its in its stance. It's not really going anywhere on this. You know, the administration's been highly critical of the WTO and its handling of China over the years. Um, I suspect that you're not going to see the Trump administration back down from this, and uh, I don't know how that works. But uh, if it would be up to the United States to have to cancel these tariffs, uh, I'd, I'd see a hard time for the Chinese getting that actually accomplished. Yeah, I don't see President Trump doing that, do you? No, I, I think it's highly unlikely at this point, especially, you know, where we stand in election year and all the things that Trump talks about with China. I just I think it's a near impossibility. 
I think he'd be more apt to say, let's pull out of the WTO than he would be to say, let's cancel the tariffs. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah. who knows that might come yet. You know, we saw it with the, with the, with the whole coronavirus thing. And, uh, you know, I, I think Trump's willing to do those, take those big steps if he needs to. Yep. A story to watch for sure. Todd, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. DTN reporter Todd Neely. We'll have more on that WTO ruling uh, on tomorrow's program. Up next, though, reaction from the biodiesel industry to the good biofuels news this week. And I emphasize that again, good news this week in a year that has not had a lot of good news for the biofuels industry. Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board joins us next right here on AOA. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. You don't take a winter break. Unfortunately, neither do insects or diseases. Trust BASF Cereal Seed Treatments to protect your winter wheat this season. This team of products provides a base of broad-spectrum disease control with stamina F4 cereals fungicide seed treatment, an added performance boost with new Relania seed treatment, and rounded out with Poncho XC seed treatment, pest protection. To learn more, contact your BASF rep or local retailer. BASF, we create chemistry. Always read and follow label directions. Keeping up on the latest in ag is a challenge, to say the least. But there are experts nearby ready to help. You'll find them at your local FS. You can trust them to bring you customized agronomic, grain, and energy solutions born of the latest thinking. That's because FS specialists receive continuous training that keeps them current on the latest trends, practices, and technologies. So you'll get local expertise that's both exceptional and up-to-date. Visit FSSystem.com to learn how FS is bringing you what's next. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Well, we have the latest beef and pork export numbers, and here with those numbers and some uh, analysis of them is Aaron Bohr, economist with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. All right, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Uh, how do the uh, latest numbers look? Thanks, Mike. Uh, I would say continued improvement. This year we look at month-on-month change, which is not typical. We usually look year-on-year, but given obvious uh, crazy circumstances, we look back month-on-month for beef up 36% compared to June and pork up 7% compared to June, which pork never decreased as hard as beef. So that's part of that difference. And so an encouraging sign, although still below year-ago levels for beef and dipping below year-ago for pork. So clearly challenges, but improving trends and the weekly data through August showed that that continued and especially for beef. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. The Home Service Club sponsors this paid advertisement. Attention homeowners. Broken AC, $4,600. Water heater, $1,500. Fridge on the fritz, $1,000. You need home warranty coverage from the Home Service Club. For around a dollar a day, if any of your covered appliances and systems break down, HSC will either do the repair or replace them. HSC has over 15,000 pre-screened, highly rated technicians with the fastest response time in the industry. HSC provides coverage for up to 47 different appliances and systems in your home. Call for a free, no-obligation quote from a trusted HSC service specialist about a home warranty for your entire home, all backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. 800-434-5301 Call now and get your first month free, plus $75 off your first year. 800-434-5301 
800-434-5301. That's 800-434-5301. 800-434-5301. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. All right, Kurt, when you got the confirmation that EPA is going to deny those gap year waivers to the renewable fuel standard, was it a sigh of relief or a celebration for you? Uh, Mike, well, I'm, I'm going to say it was close to a celebration for us. Um, you know, we, we greatly appreciate and applaud this decision by the EPA to uh, put to bed this nonsense and absurdity that small refiners have been using to uh, you know, undermine the renewable fuel standard and, and business certainty that was supposed to be created by this law. It, it shouldn't have been this hard. There should not have uh, needed to be this much work by you know Senator Ernst and Senator Grassley and Governor Reynolds and others to convince the administration to simply do the right thing. This this was a no-brainer, uh, but at the end of the day, I think it 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 uh, is positive news both for the for the biofuels community at large and then uh, you know biodiesel and, and soybean farmers specifically. We've seen with this administration over the past few years the undermining of volumes that leads to. Uh, reduced markets at lower value for uh, soybean oil. So to finally, hopefully, put the nail in the coffin of this absurd uh, loophole that was created under the previous EPA administrator, Pruitt, uh, is, is a positive step. We're, we're taking it as a win. There are certainly other challenges that remain, namely that this action that they took earlier this week uh, denied 54 of the total of 68 small refiner exemptions that were filed to try to circumvent the decision of the 10th Circuit. Our, our interest now is to determine uh, why there's 14 still remaining. We're hopeful that uh, they'll process those 14 in the same manner that they process these 54 and that we've got nothing to worry about. But with this EPA, we've, we've learned they have a track record of uh, doing one, saying one thing and doing another, so we'll keep a close eye on it. Yeah, as good a news as this is that these gap year waivers have been denied, uh, the next step is what do they do with the current and future requests that they get? And uh, hopefully how they're handling the gap year ones gives us a sign of how they're going to handle these that are pending now. I think you're exactly right. And with that decision, the 10th Circuit from uh, from January that essentially – admonished EPA for opening up this uh, gaping hole in the statute, acting outside of their authority. Uh, that's being appealed right now to the Supreme Court. We don't think there's any merit for the Supreme Court to even hear the case. But once, once we get resolution at the Supreme Court level, if they, if they reject even hearing this, that would essentially signal to the EPA, you know what, the, the gig is up here. It's time to follow that Tenth Circuit decision. It's time to apply that nationally. And that would mean that essentially beyond these gap year waivers, uh, a vast majority of the, the waivers that have been requested for 2019 and now for 2020 should be deemed ineligible and denied, which will finally mean, and Mike, this is, this is the crux of the issue, is 
the renewable fuel standard requires EPA to set annual volumes so that the market understands and has a clear signal of what the demand is going to be for a given year. That is what producers, feedstock providers, petroleum companies rely on in uh, conducting their day-to-day business. It, it's hard to believe, but it's going to take us essentially a four- or five-year process to get us back to the sanity that Congress intended so that when the volumes are set by EPA, it sends that market signal, and that is the volume that needs to be met. And that's been the most frustrating component of this over the past uh, few years is the uncertainty that these SREs have wrought upon uh, our producers because, you know, they assume the volume is one thing, and then in the dead of night, EPA grants these exemptions to small refiners, and suddenly uh, market demand vanishes, and only a, a handful of parties are aware that the, 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 the playing field has now changed. So I'm just pleased and relieved for our biodiesel producers, our soybean growers, that I believe on the horizon we have some degree of absolute certainty that uh, they can all operate in a market where everything is fair and on the up and up. We're talking with Kurt Kavarik with the National Biodiesel Board. We're talking about those levels that are set by EPA as we wait for next year's levels to be announced. I know you've been disappointed in the past that they've not set those levels higher for biodiesel. What are you expecting when we finally get next year's levels? Well, uh, rumor had it in the spring that there was going to be a modest increase for biomass-based diesel in the upcoming uh, rulemaking, setting volumes for us for 2021. That's really been, up. it obviously was put on hold as a result of the, the flood of these gap SREs and EPA not wanting to deal with this issue before the election. It's anybody's guess now as to whether EPA will put out this RVO proposal in the near term. They're required to actually finalize it by November 30th. They're going to miss that deadline. They would have needed to have uh, the proposal out earlier this summer in order to meet that deadline. Um but it's anybody's guess at this point in terms of how the EPA is going to uh, clear up some of this mess that's been created, both as a result of how they've handled the SRE program, the delay in the RVO, and other things. It is still critically important, particularly for biomass-based diesel, that we get this volume uh, proposal out there so that our industry has the time to respond and uh, react and be able to meet those volumes. So I'm hopeful that it gets done here uh, soon, but we haven't been given any signal. We're, we're just kind of uh, still basking in the success of uh, this ex- action by EPA and this president, and, and extremely thankful for our champions on the Hill in, in putting on the pressure to get this done. Um, and we'll, we'll work with EPA. You know, I hope this is a, a positive step that we can build on and start addressing some of those concerns that you mentioned about uh, setting the volumes for for future years. Okay, where are you? What's the state of the biofuels, the biodiesel industry right now as far as your production? Where are you at as far as capacity? Uh, What's the demand? Kind of give us an overview. Sure. Well, heading into into 2020, uh, getting enactment of a long-term extension of the biodiesel tax credit, we were hopeful to see kind of a gangbuster year here in terms of production with certainty uh, going forward. Unfortunately, with the, the COVID and the economic shutdowns related to that and disruptions in feedstocks related to that, we haven't necessarily achieved that full potential. But I would say that uh, things have, have, have improved modestly 
since perhaps May or in June. Um, I'm not going to tell you, I, I can't tell you exactly what we're at in terms of industry capacity right now, but demand is, is certainly there. It's not where we expected it to be at this point in time, uh, but it, it's not as, it hasn't been a significant drop-off as, as one might expect, and that's primarily due to uh, the, the sectors of the economy that rely on diesel and biodiesel to operate, and that is you know, uh, industrial and long-haul trucking. And there really hasn't been a significant drop-off in demand uh, for those. But as you pointed out, even with the good news of this week, it's going to take a while to, to rebound and get back to where you were and, and move forward. Never-ending challenges with the biofuels industry. But listen, we, we know the benefits of the fuel, uh, both to our environment, to clean air, to the rural economy, to farmers' pocketbooks. Uh, it's a fight worth uh, fighting, and we're going to continue to do it because we, we recognize the benefits of it. And just to uh, reemphasize the importance of this decision on these waivers, uh, we've pointed this out before. As much as the ethanol industry has been negatively impacted by those waivers, you could make a case the biodiesel industry was hurt even more. Without a doubt. We're, we're much more dependent upon uh, the EPA's volumes that they set under the Renewable Fuel Standard for our market. Because ethanol has uh, is very readily available, cost competitive, an octane boost, there, there's a natural drive for ethanol. There has to be a, a, an economic motivation uh, aside from the fuel in a lot of cases for biodiesel to be blended. And that means we're much more dependent upon those uh, volumes set by EPA. So to bring about this certainty so that, you know, the truckers, the truck stops, the biodiesel producers and petroleum companies know what the volume is and can operate with some degree of certainty is a huge step forward. Kurt, good to talk with you. Good to have good news to talk about. Thank you very much. Always glad to be with you, Mike. Thank you, sir. Take care. Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Obviously very happy over the announcement that EPA will be denying those gap year waivers to the renewable fuels standard. And we wait and see how they handle the uh, the other pending waiver requests and future requests as well. Well, another big storm, Hurricane Sally, a lot of uh, flooding, a lot of damage. What does that mean for our river transportation system? What about the ports? What about moving uh, product through those uh, terminals, those facilities? We'll get an update from Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, next on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. A toast to soil health. More and more landowners and their farmers are celebrating healthy soil for good reason. Because farmers who use soil health building practices like no-till and cover crops and who use diverse species and rotations report greater farm productivity, profitability, and resiliency. So here's to your soil's health. Contact your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn how to unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. 
Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. After a brief pause yesterday, soybean futures returning to positive territory. A streak of Chinese buying of U.S. soybean exports supportive to prices. USDA on Wednesday reporting 327,000 tons of soybeans sold to China. Today's hog slaughter estimated at 482,000 head. That'd be steady with a week ago. Cattle slaughter at 120,000 head, 1,000 head better than a week ago. Cash cattle markets have been quiet so far on the week. Asking prices on a live basis remain at 105 to 107 per hundred weight. In the outside markets, U.S. share benchmarks posting gains early Wednesday as investors await the Federal Reserve's latest views on economic growth and on inflation prospects as well. An hour into the trading day, soybean futures, November up 15 and three quarters at 10.07 a bushel, January at 10.11 and a quarter, up 15 and a quarter. December corn up two and a quarter, 368 and a quarter. March up two at 377 and three quarters. Chicago wheat December up a fraction at 538 and a half. Kansas City wheat December at 472 and a quarter, up four and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat December up three and three quarters at 528. Live cattle October down 50 at 10660. December near unchanged at 11160. Feeder cattle October down 77 at 142.95. Lean hog futures October 15 higher at 65.85. December 22 lower at 62.82. The Dow up 99. S&P up 7. Crude oil up $1.35 a barrel. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks On Site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. 
wasn't long ago we were talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, about the potential impact of Hurricane Laura on our river system, port system, our moving of uh, ag products. Well, we may have, for the most part, dodged a bullet with Hurricane Laura, but what about Hurricane Sally? He's back with an update. Mike, uh, what's the threat here? Well, the, the, the hurricane made landfall earlier this morning along primarily the Alabama coast and the Florida panhandle, kind of the area of Mobile, Alabama, which from a soybean and corn supply chain perspective, that that kind of right-hand turn that the storm made as it made closer to landfall uh, was beneficial, at least from a, again, from a soybean and corn export perspective. Uh, what we're seeing with the, the New Orleans area, that lower Mississippi River, is that the the channel is still shut down near the near the mouth of the Mississippi where it empties into the Gulf of Mexico, but you're seeing operations resume uh, kind of in the New Orleans area, closer to Baton Rouge. So again, that's certainly beneficial from our perspective. Clearly, um, the folks in Alabama and Panhandle of Florida and the subsequent areas are really going to be struggling. Certainly, the storm is a you know strong with you know, over 100 mile an hour sustained winds as a category two, but it's what the real concern is how slow moving it is and how much rain it's going to be uh, providing as a result of that. Yeah, the flooding is a huge issue. Uh, do you think that's going to slow the transportation down uh, through the system? You know, I, I don't see a lot of concern out of the Mississippi Gulf. You know, there are some there are some degree of export activity that goes out of the port of Mobile. Very, very little soybeans or corn, uh, but there are. But that Mobile is a, a decent-sized port, so certain, clearly that's going to have an impact on that that region. So, but I I anticipate that we'll see operations along the Lower Mississippi River near New Orleans return to normal, you know, in the next uh, couple days. And and it's very important because we have a lot of healthy export activity that's leaving from that region. Last week we had about you know, 14 to 15 vessels of soybeans depart from the Lower Mississippi River, about 30 million bushels of soybeans. So this is clearly a time where we want that key link in our supply chain to be operating. So as you point out, as you pointed out and alluded to earlier, that right-hand turn the storm took really made a difference as far as the uh, river transportation system and the the the, the port facilities and uh, our our movement of of grain and other goods uh, on the system. Yeah, that was that was really key and and you know, whenever we see a storm materialize in the Gulf of Mexico, given how we have 60% of U.S. soybean exports leave from that lower Mississippi River, 57% of corn exports. Uh, those of us in agriculture get noticeably uh, mindful and, and concerned whenever we see something like that materialize. And so it, it certainly merits our attention. Again, you know, the, the folks in Alabama and, and Panhandle of Florida are really going to be struggling, but at least from a, from a soybean and corn uh, logistics perspective, you know that that right-hand turn that the storm made was uh, was certainly beneficial to our industry. Yeah, so uh, we continue to uh, watch that storm and uh, uh, remember those that are in the path of it. And a lot of people are going to be impacted by this for some time. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, what about uh, the uh, the 
dredging project down there as far as uh, deepening and, and and making it possible for larger vessels to uh, to operate down there. Is that on on schedule? We're 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 really pleased that you know last week they actually started some of the work of actually having having uh, a dredge actually scooping up dirt and actually depositing off to the, the to the side of the the channel and so that has actually commenced and uh, obviously a really welcome moment for those in southern Louisiana uh, industries like the soybean industry the corn industry that really feed into it. Um, you know, that region of the country is the largest port region in the United States in terms of volume of freight handled. So not only agriculture, but energy products, there's a lot of industries that rely on that lower Mississippi River, really connects us with the rest of the world. And so the fact that that, that project is moving forward, it's going to make us more competitive, uh, really welcome day. Okay, so we're going into harvest now. Um... Give us an update along the river system. Where are the uh, potential bottlenecks or areas of concern? Well, I mean, the, the good news is that we, with all of the uh, energy behind our export market, um, you know, the concern is uh, will our supply chain be able to accommodate that? And so, you know, that we're going to be really focused on to what extent could there be rail bottlenecks? Could there be on the inland waterway system? Um, you know the railroads express confidence in their ability to handle the, you know the volume coming their way, since a lot of that, the, a lot of those exports going to China will go out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, mm-hmm. Something I'm going to keep focusing on is, you know, as we have these Illinois River locks and dams that are closed for rehabilitation until the end of October, to what extent could that create some some bottlenecks along the inland waterway system? Uh, that those projects seem to be moving along as scheduled, so that's good news. But that's something that's certainly to keep our minds on. Now, there's always concern. You mentioned rail. Always that concern about the rail car availability. Do you think we're in good shape this harvest season? Well, again, I mean, the railroads. I mean, they're they're saying the right things. They're they they're you know positioning assets accordingly. Um, you know, the the wild card is always things like. You know, weather. Uh, do we have unexpected cold weather, or do we have snow, or you know, all of a sudden, are there is there competition from other uh, commodities? And so mm-hmm. that's something that we really keep in mind. But yeah, as of right now, um, it's looking pretty favorable that we'll we'll have the needed rail service, move, particularly moving out to that Pacific Northwest. Because there's always that issue: competition for those cars. Are they uh, committed to providing those for? For grain hauling, or is there still the possibility they could go somewhere else? And that—that's always the real challenge. You know, a number of years ago, when we had oil prices that were above a hundred dollars a barrel, all of a sudden there was all of this oil production in places like you know Western North Dakota, and all of a sudden that squeezed out a lot of rail capacity for agriculture and other products. Whenever you have a real extreme cold winter, all of a sudden the demand for Things like coal will will increase, and that can create greater competition between some of these energy products and and soybeans and grains. So that's always the real challenge, and um, you never really know until you actually get there. You know, at least right now, we're, we're things are looking pretty favorable. But again, uh, what we've learned from the past is that can change um, certainly on a dime. Yeah, we'll stay tuned on that one. And finally, Mike. Uh, even though, as you've pointed out, work 
is being done along the river system. We're, we're getting some improvements made and much needed ones. But we're about to go through another year without the passage of a comprehensive infrastructure bill. And I'm sure there'll soon be promises made that it's going to get done and that it's going to be high on the priority list for whoever wins and things like that. But uh, so far, it's been more talk than action. Yeah, and, and what we're also seeing right now is uh, because of the impending election, you know, it looks like Congress will have to just extend the current what's called the, a highway bill. It's It sunsets on September 30th of this year. They'll probably just extend it for another year, which is better than letting it expire. But um, And then there's also a Water Resources Development Act that they very well might wait until a lame duck ses- session after the election. But what, what we just continue to see, and this is an indictment on both Republicans and Democrats, is that there's this reluctance and phobia of seeing the other side get credit for anything. And again, Republicans and Democrats are mutual offenders on this. And for those of us who are actually um, you know, citizens wanting just to see our country get to work and be able to see our businesses thrive, that's really frustrating because we just we care less about who gets credit. We just care more about will it get done. And um, you know, we're we're continuing to see this behavior that's frankly not serving the American people well. And so we just you know remain you know really vigilant to making sure that these things actually do get done. And you know, obviously, it's a message that we need to continue to prosecute. I think back over the last three four years, I naively thought that the infrastructure issue was one that both sides could come together on quickly and and get something done. I underestimated the political uh, divisiveness and the level to which it has reached in this country that has uh, kept that from happening. And as you said, both parties are guilty of this. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this greater fixation on who gets it done versus what gets done. And, um, you know, those of us out in the Midwest and throughout the country, we care about what gets done. And we, we, we have less of a scorecard about who is mainly responsible for it. And that's why we send our, our leaders to Washington, D.C. and to state capitals to actually just get things done. So, you know, it, this is not something that's new. Um, it seems to be getting worse and worse with each passing year, which is very unfortunate. Um, but, you know, we have to just remain engaged. We can't just throw up our hands and just say that's the way it is. We have to remain engaged and, and really demand something better. Um, obviously, a very big challenge, and um, it'll take a lot of work. But, you know, we obviously have to remain engaged on these issues. All right, Mike, good to talk with you. Thanks for the update. Thank you, Mike. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Up next... We'll talk with a Maryland soybean farmer about growing high oleic soybeans. What are the opportunities? What advancements have been made? You might want to take a look at it for next year. We'll talk about it next right here on AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. 
your kidneys could keep filtering, and your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You don't take a winter break. Unfortunately, neither do insects or diseases. Trust BASF cereal seed treatments to protect your winter wheat this season. This team of products provides a base of broad-spectrum disease control with stamina F4 cereals fungicide seed treatment, an added performance boost with new Relania seed treatment, and rounded out with Poncho XC seed treatment pest protection. To learn more, contact your BASF rep or local retailer. BASF, we create chemistry. Always read and follow label directions. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you. Cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Mike Steenhook, who is executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, uh, this week there was a ceremony kicking off the construction of barge loading and unloading terminal along the Missouri River. Tell us about the significance of this new terminal that will be built. This past Wednesday, there was a groundbreaking in the, the small town of Blenco, Iowa. They had a groundbreaking for a new barge loading and unloading facility along the Missouri River. They have an intention of, of loading some degree of soybeans for the export market from that facility yet this November, December. You know, clearly, the construction progress will take a while, so it'll, things will occur in waves and in increments. But you know, the, the plan is to, is to be engaged in international marketing for this farmer-owned cooperative by shipping on the, the Missouri River. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. 
If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to look closer at this WTO ruling against the U.S. when it comes to the tariffs we've put on China and what that could mean moving forward. We'll get some thoughts on that. Could be a big story and what the reaction will be by the U.S., whether we'll continue to place those tariffs on or what do we do concerning the WTO. A lot of questions there. We'll get into that. And we're also going to look at the Uh, marketing during this harvest season, the opportunities that are there with uh, some of the rallies that have been going on, some of the export sales uh, that have been announced. So we will be looking uh, more closely at that coming up on tomorrow's program as well. Right now we're going to look at something that you might want to consider if you haven't already, growing high Lake Soybeans. Joining us now is Belinda Burrier, a soybean grower from Maryland and a farmer leader with the United Soybean Board. Belinda, thanks for joining us. Uh, you got some uh, things to talk to farmers about when it comes to high Lake. Tell us about them. Yes, good morning. This, uh, I'm out here in sunny, uh, smoky sunny Maryland, and uh, the U- United Soybean Board has been uh, working on these high oleic soybeans, and they have been prom- promoting and creating demand for them. And uh, uh, I guess we'll talk about them a little bit here this morning. Well, why is high oleic different from, say, other specialty crops? Well, the high oleic soybeans have actually uh, been no different in the management style of uh, growing them. And so it creates a better uh, diversification for the farmers here on the East Coast and the Midwest West for uh, growing a crop that we don't have to uh, do any added uh, extra management as far as when to plant, uh, the pesticide management, the fertilizer management, everything is completely the same. And uh, so it's made it a very good product to to diversify to. Well, what are the uh, the challenges or what is required in, in growing high lake soybeans? Well, the, the soybeans go in at the same time as commodity crop beans. And the only challenge that we have been running into is the weed management has been a little tough. But the seed companies happen to be working with us and trying to make improvements as far as uh, uh, the chemical compounds as what we can battle any resistant weeds. So that's the only the only problem with it. Um, 
the local farmers can deliver to uh, local mills and get the being processed and and uh so really that's the only problem with them for farmers thinking about possibly growing high lake beans in the future what would you say to them i would say give them a try it it's no no uh, problem growing them uh we actually plant them a lot of them behind our wheat as double crop beans and uh, uh, we don't have any problems with them. They actually do very well. They get plenty of sunlight to for the bean pod fill. And if they'd like to check out our website on the higher leg soybeans, they can go to soyinnovation.com or contact their local seed representative about the higher leg beans or even check with their local mill to see if they have a local delivery point. I was going to ask, what about uh, the contract situation, the demand that's there, the opportunities that are there, marketing uh, opportunities? The marketing opportunities, they have uh, high leg soybeans actually have a, a premium on them, and they range anywhere from $0.40 cents a bushel to $1.50 a bushel. And uh, uh, the basis has been working out very well for different farmers and uh Pre-marketing has been going much better since uh, we're starting to move the 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 the, the beans that here locally and abroad. And uh, U.S. United Soybean Board has uh, created demand throughout all the markets, industrial and restaurants, and uh, uh, local feeds. So we got plenty of demand for it. Well, that's the key, of course, and. I know you've been trying to get this message out to get farmers to take a look at growing high lake beans. Um, what do you think is holding uh, some back from from taking that step? Uh, probably the main thing holding back uh, farmers is they don't know where to deliver the beans. So I would, uh, again, suggest that they check out the soyinnovation.com and see where their local delivery point would be and uh, give it a try. Uh, it, it won't hurt. It definitely puts out the same yield as a commodity bean, so they're not out anything. What about seed availability? Seed availability seems to be uh, on the rise. Uh, the seed marketing, the seed producers have been uh, uh, trying to fulfill what we need to to have uh, produced because uh, we've created such a demand that we really need more more farmers to go ahead and take up growing them. Well, what's uh, what's your crop look like there in Maryland? You about ready to harvest? Uh, they're starting to defoliate, and uh, it's looking pretty good. We've had some good hot days. We've had timely rain, and the pod fill seems to be coming along very well. Uh, we look to probably start the end of September, mid-October, and get on with it. All right. Um, so, again, for anyone wanting more information on growing and marketing high oleic uh, beans, uh, what's that website they can go to? Sure. Check it out at soyinnovation.com, and um, they'll answer any of the questions that you may have on delivery points or the, where to acquire your soybeans. All right, Belinda, thank you for joining us. Have a good harvest. Thank you, and you're welcome. All right, Belinda Burrier, she's a 
one of the uh, farmer leaders with the United Soybean Board. She's a soybean grower, Ohio Lake soybean grower in the state of Maryland. Well, that wraps it up for today. Busy show. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. I hope you have a safe day and join us again tomorrow. Again, we'll be talking markets. We'll be talking about trade issues such as the WTO ruling on tariffs on China and some issues such as that. And, of course, keep you up to date with all the ag news that we can. Hope that you'll join us. Be with us right here on AOA.